When memory goes, what remains? Many family members are surprised to discover that there's love, vulnerability, intimacy, joy possible because this person suddenly is in the moment. For a growing number of families, caring for someone with dementia is a fact of life. As more and more people survive the chronic illnesses that once killed our grandparents. I think of dementia as brain failure. We have been better and better at treating lots of other illnesses like heart disease and cancer. We are living longer and long enough to have notable cases of brain failure. On today's program, patient-centered care for people with dementia on Hear Me Now from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. Late in the year 1901, Right at the cusp between autumn and winter, a woman was admitted to the hospital for the mentally ill and epileptics in Frankfurt. She was seen by one of the hospital's senior physicians, Dr. Alois Alzheimer. She had a remarkable cluster of symptoms, especially remarkable because of the woman's relatively young age. She was 51 years old. Reduced comprehension and memory, aphasia, disorientation, unpredictable behavior, paranoia, auditory hallucinations, and pronounced psychosocial impairment. For the next five years, and in three hospitals, in Frankfurt, in Heidelberg, and finally in Munich, Dr. Alzheimer would document the illness of his patient keeping a record in a blue cardboard file folder in both Latin script and in that now outdated German style of handwriting. The case history begins the morning after her admission to the hospital. 26 November 1901. She sits on the bed with a helpless expression. What is your name? Auguste. Last name? Auguste, what is your husband's name? Auguste, I think. At lunch, she eats cauliflower and pork. Asked what she is eating, she answers, spinach. In the days that would follow, Alois Alzheimer would continue to document the illness of his patient. Asked to write Augusta D, she tries to write Mrs. and forgets the rest. It is necessary to repeat every word. Amnestic writing disorder. In the evening, her spontaneous speech is full of paraphasic derailments and perseverations. patient is asked to recognize objects by touch with her eyes closed. A toothbrush, 
sponge, bread, spoon, brush, glass, knife, fork, plate, purse, mark, cigar, key. She recognizes them quickly and correctly. By touch, she calls a brass cup, a milk jug, a teaspoon. But when she opens her eyes, she immediately says, a cup. When she has to write, Mrs. Augusta D, she writes Mrs. And we must repeat the other words because she forgets them. The patient is not able to progress in writing and repeats, I have lost myself. I have lost myself. Auguste Dieter died in April of 1906. The cause of death was septicemia due to decubitus ulcers. Alzheimer asked that he be given her medical record and her brain, which he studied. He would go on to describe for the very first time the tangles and plaques that are the anatomical hallmarks of the disease that bears his name today. His drawings of those details of Auguste Dieter's brain, the woman who told him she had lost herself, are hauntingly prescient. The precise significance of those tangles could not have been understood in 1906. And yet, Alzheimer's detailed drawings of what he saw under the microscope tell us that he somehow grasped their importance in that pathology lab in Munich at the beginning of the last century. Today, we're still trying to fully understand their meaning. On today's program, a discussion of Alzheimer's disease, the related dementias, and the best care possible for people with neurocognitive behavioral disorders. I'm pleased to be able to welcome three people with great experience and expertise who will join us for the conversation. Maureen Nash is the medical director of Providence PACE, a program for all-inclusive care for the elderly in Portland, Oregon. She's an internal medicine physician and geriatric psychiatrist. She's also the 2020 American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry's Clinician of the Year. She edited a book, Neurocognitive Behavioral Disorders, An Interdisciplinary Approach to Patient-Centered Care, which was published in 2019. Maureen Nash, welcome. Thank you. Sally Tisdale is an author of nine books, most recently Advice for Future Corpses and Those Who Love Them. In reviewing that book, the New York Times noted in its loving, fierce specificity, this book on how to die is also a blessedly saccharine-free guide for how to live. Sally Tisdale's writing has appeared in Harper's, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Tricycle, The Buddhist Review, in addition to many, many other publications. Sally Tisdale is also a nurse at Providence Elder Place in Portland, Oregon. Sally, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
And finally, David Schenk. He's the author of six books where he's explored everything from the Grateful Dead to the modern problem of too much information and data smog to the immortal game of chess to the nature of genius. And he's passionately and poignantly written about Alzheimer's in a groundbreaking book, The Forgetting, Portrait of an Epidemic. Along with Greg O'Brien, David co-hosts a podcast also called The Forgetting, which we'll talk about a little bit later. David has for years closely followed progress in Alzheimer's research and has lent his talent as a speaker and moderator in support of those efforts. He joins us from the wilds of Brooklyn, New York. David, welcome. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you, Sean. Great, great to be with you all. So let's start with some definitions. Um, dementia as I understand it, is an umbrella term that describes a wide spectrum of illnesses, neurocognitive illnesses, that include different types of cognitive dysfunction, behavioral symptoms, functional deficits. Dr. Nash, can you put that in layman's terms that we can all understand? Sure, I'll do my best. So yeah, dementia is an umbrella term for a collection of different diseases and syndromes. And um, they all involve brain damage and brain dysfunction. Um, and what type of dementia you have really will drive what parts of your brain aren't working and what signs and symptoms you have. The type of dementia you have will also drive what parts of your brain are working and so really knowing the kind of dementia can be very helpful so that you can work with the parts of that person's brain that are more likely to work well um, and try and compensate for those parts of their brain that aren't working well. I think of dementia as brain failure. It's analogous to heart failure. And both your brain and your heart are pretty much the most essential organs that we have. Alzheimer's disease is by far the most common kind of dementia. Age is the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's. And as we have been better and better at treating lots of other illnesses like heart disease and, and cancer, we are living longer and long enough to have notable cases of brain failure. Hmm. The unintended consequence of success in other areas of medicine. Right. How does someone typically get referred for care? Is it something that a primary care physician notices? Is it something a family notices and seeks help for? How does your average patient come to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and actually, um, because Alzheimer's disease is the most common kind of dementia, like eight, eight out of 10 people who have dementia will have at least Alzheimer's disease. They may have another type as well. But the thing about Alzheimer's disease is that conversational speech is preserved late into the illness. And so your primary care provider may be the last person to recognize because you go to see them once every four months or six months or once a year and have the same conversation. How are your knees? How's your back? How's your stomach? Because you've been having those kind of problems. And so the conversation is somewhat repetitive. 
Um, so family members and neighbors are often the first people to notice somebody has um, a problem. Roughly two thirds of people with Alzheimer's have anosognosia or an inability to recognize that they themselves have a problem. So that is, if you sort of think about it, when it's your brain that is broken, um, and your brain that helps you solve problems, uh, there you right there you get at the heart of, of the problem. Right. I don't know about you, but um, a lot of people ask me if if I think they might have a dementia. As we get older and people have natural forgetfulness, um, I, I recently saw an interesting research study that showed that people in their 20s are just as forgetful as people in their 60s and 70s. But they are used. They they compensate for it and don't worry about it. When you're in your 70s, suddenly you worry about it. <laughs> so a lot of people ask me, if such and such happened, does that mean I have dementia? And people are people notice. Oh, I've lost my keys, or I took the wrong turn going to the store, and magnify it into a huge loss. And I agree with what Maureen said, which is that it it is often the people closest to you that just start to get a feeling that something is off. The person in my life who I believe is moving into dementia, I notice it in their inability to follow the content of a conversation. They can speak and they can respond to the sentence you said, but they can't keep track of what happened in the conversation five minutes earlier. And they're not aware of this. David, you have some family history. Yeah, it, it's uh, my, my mother had uh, atypical dementia, um, turned out not to be Alzheimer's, um, which didn't fit my my specialty very well. So it was inconvenient. But um, <laughs> I, I think that it's such a great point that the doctors quite often don't notice this. Let me say anecdotally, just as an aside, because I don't really want to turn this into an indictment of the medical profession that, uh, uh, necessarily. But it's also true that a lot of doctors may notice something and just don't want to go down that road. Uh, and what I hear a lot are reassuring things. People will go to a doctor, to a, to a GP and, and with some concerns, and they will get reassured, actually inappropriately so, that it's just a touch of dementia and it's nothing to worry about because, uh, because a lot of uh, GPs are just not equipped to... Uh, either psychologically or otherwise, to actually take the next step. Um, and I, I know that's a huge generalization, but that's anecdotally. I've heard that uh, a thousand times. But but to get back to, to the other point, I think it's absolutely true that uh, the vast majority of cases, the first person who notices is a spouse or a family member, close friend, who is really detecting uh, if they've got their antenna up something that th these these really subtle changes that you wouldn't necessarily know from having a conversation every couple of months or every couple of years. But if you're having conversations constantly and you see that they're not having the same level of recall uh, or they're missing things that are just so obvious that you just said, uh, it could be a, a, a quick red flag. I actually think of it as the D word. Dementia is the D word. And any students of history, we used to have the C word. Yeah cancer in the 1960s. Cancer was very common, still is, but somebody had it and we didn't tell them. Sometimes we tell their family, but we didn't tell them because there was nothing we could do about it. 
Right. And that's the key is that we're living under this just hor horrific taboo. And uh, the three of us have probably spent decades, uh, you know, throwing everything we can at the wall to try to try to diminish that taboo. But the truth is, as the doctor just suggested, you can't cut through the taboo until there's actually something you can do about it. So when we have the first real treatments and people can have at least a little bit of hope that detecting it early, there's a payoff to that. That's when we can start to see the wall of the taboo come down. Unfortunately, one of the first things that happens is that people are infantilized and objectified with this diagnosis. And if you don't tell a person they have this diagnosis, that doesn't mean you're not going to infantilize and objectify the person. They, it is a very cruel thing to withhold this information. And every one of us, professional or not, we do have this tendency to diminish the person with the diagnosis. And we have to fight against it. And I've certainly been corrected more than once by, because I was assuming less of a person than they were capable of. And I've been reminded I'm here and I know what's going on and stop taking my personhood away. So when we don't share the diagnosis and talk about it bluntly and often, we, we magnify that problem quite a bit. Can I agree with that, but also just add to it, and it may sound like I'm disagreeing, but it's, it's also just trying to enlarge the, 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 the conversation because it's, it's everything that we're all going to say ends up having such you know complexity to it if you take kind of the next step. And another piece to that, I, I think, is that, yes, there is this natural instinct to not offend and not, you know, not tell the person necessarily if it's not absolutely necessary. Uh, at the same time, that person can be giving off signals that they don't, they really don't want to hear that. And so it can also be a, a matter of respect that you're just respecting their, their wishes, either silently or or, or not so much. And as, as also, as we've alluded to, a lot of these, a lot of these folks don't really either on the, the, the patient side or the, the family side don't really, aren't really aware of this until we're several stages into this, at which point there's a, there's a pretty good argument to make, depending on the circumstances, that there's no point in kind of thrusting this information upon the patient unless they send signs that they, they really want it. So it's really complex there, I think. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I remember the wonderful trend of reality reorientation um, oh. in, my, in my early years as a nurse, which was that if somebody thought it was 1946, you had to continually remind them that they were wrong and that it was really 1986 or whatever. And so people were continually, repeatedly distressed. And uh, thank God we've let that go. And now I try to be in the reality they're in and right. support that. And yes, there is a point where there's no point in telling a person they have dementia. They, for one thing, they're not going to remember that you told them. Right. And, and it will just create distress. So I certainly see your point. Yeah. But to the extent that we can tell people early in the disease, people do remain oriented to their circumstances for quite a long time in many forms of dementia. And they need to know that they have some deficits to adapt to. Right. And that's, and we, we wanted to talk about person-centered care here. And that is a lot of that is about adapting to the person's needs and their circumstances. And they need to be part of that. 
And don't you run the risk if you're infantilizing a patient early in the disease process of just depersonalizing them for the rest of the disease process so that when it when the disease trajectory continues and you're left with really having to have a in-the-moment personal relationship, literally in the moment with someone, with no history, with no memory, that it becomes harder to do that because you've sort of taken their personhood away. Don't forget that um, if you have the kind of dementia where you can't form new memories. You still have old memories. You have old memories, but very old memories until you don't. Um, but the other part of that is there is a blessing to that. You go in, I go in, I'm a caregiver. I go in to help someone get dressed. The interaction starts going south uh, and the person is just getting very, very distressed. Well, I can leave, walk down the hall, turn around, come back. <gasps> Mrs. Jones, oh, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. Let's get dressed. And you can start over. Mm-hmm. So right. there, it's not, it, it, I think um, complex is the key there. There's so many different layers of complexity. And, and I do, I would like to posit that even if I don't have a drug that is going to reverse this and bring dead brain cells back to life, there are still things I can do um, to make your life better as soon as there is a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and getting to know you, the more intact you are when I get to know you and get to know things about you, the better off I can be as a person in your life and a resource for you as your life goes on. I think it's a myth. It's a myth that it's untreatable. It's a myth that it's un, it's, it's not even just a myth. It's a tragedy that people believe that. Because that's what, and that's exactly like Sally said, that person-centered care. It's a matter of, of knowing or finding ways to evaluate which parts of this person's brain are working today and helping them use those parts. Because one of the things that we, we often um, don't realize the importance of what I call meaningful goal-directed activity I realize is a little artificial as a phrase, but it's why retirement can be such a tragedy for some people. No because purpose. if you, right, if you are a workaholic or most of your life is spent at work, which for some of us might be true, um, then when you have, if you don't replace that with other meaningful goal-directed activity, then it's really hard to continue to to be a successful human. And, and I have found that is so important with people who have dementia. I, you know, from the man who was continually got down on the floor to scrub the floor. And he was so upset if you tried to redirect him. That was very important to him to do. Yeah, He'd spent his whole life doing that. Um, yeah. And so I think that, There are so many different parts of this, but I want to tell you that person-centered care and getting to know people and learning the right questions to ask, asking them often, learning as much about a person and their life story, it does enable me as a 
as a healthcare provider to help a person. And when a person with dementia can no longer learn the thing that it, it gets really challenging for caregivers. And what I, what I say to, to myself for my family members that I've cared for as well as to others is the good news is that your brain isn't broken, not this way. And so you can, you learn. can learn. Right, exactly. And so teaching the people around the person with dementia to change and compensate. And so if Which, you look at things that way, it is treatable. And certainly the environment is changeable. We can often change the environment right. to make things work better. You know, we have this, what what is called the tragedy discourse of dementia, which is that the moment you have this diagnosis, everybody around you treats you as a victim of tragedy. It's, it's unalloyed terribleness um, and people just give up. They just kind of give up. And the person is treated with that tragedy forward. And we, it's a difficult disease, group of diseases, but we certainly our reactions can make it much worse. And to me, one of the tragedies of dementia is that so many people end up spending their last years in nursing homes and memory care units with unlicensed caregivers who are not trained to do this. They don't have the education or the skill. It's easy for us to talk about it, but I'm not there at three in the morning at the memory care unit. A nurse's aide is who may never have been taught about this. And I see it all the time that if, if we could change, you, you were gonna ask about the future. If I could change the future, it would be that there be professional certificates and trainings for all the caregivers who work with people who have dementia and that it be about adapting and person-centered work. You know, that I have looked into, I've always been fascinated by the concept of well-being and happiness. And there, it's very difficult to study even in people who don't have brain failure. Um, so there's not been a lot of studies of well-being in people with dementia, but what has been done and certainly anecdotally, people say, I'm happy. I have good quality of life. I still have meaning, I still have purpose, if you let me. If you don't suddenly take away everything, like like Maureen says, if suddenly take away my work, take away my family, take away my name, start treating me differently, then I lose my quality of life. But the research that's been done shows that well-being and personhood, a sense of self, is retained quite late into the progression of the diseases. We have to, we, ha we really have to notice our projection of terribleness that we do and make room for the possibility of happiness and pleasure and meaning. You know, um, it strikes me that for the last 35 years or so, we've been hearing people in our culture talk about living in the moment. And so, <laughs> um, yes, yes we should population of people who are living in the moment. Yes. And many, many family members are surprised to discover that there's love, vulnerability, intimacy, joy possible because this person suddenly is in the moment. And that walk around the block is filled with miracles and surprises yeah. in a way that it never was before. We need to make room for that in ourselves, I think. 
not a few times I've been giving a, a speech about Alzheimer's and explaining all the different stages, and I will be talking about it in fairly dark terms because it is, we can say that we can get away from the word tragedy, but none of us would, would want this to be, to be dealing this with this if we could you know, not have it in this universe. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll go so far down the dark road that I will literally be interrupted by a caregiver who says, aren't you going to talk about the life-affirming possibilities that can happen because there have been some amazing things that have happened in my, my life and my wife's life since she has gotten dementia, and, and they will bring it back to me, and they'll force me to, right. to, to open up that side of the conversation, even though I, I've, of course, recognized that and written about it, but it's, you, can, you can kind of go down one road and, and lose sight of that. That's writer and podcaster David Shank talking with us from Brooklyn and with us from Portland, Oregon, our writer and nurse Sally Tisdale and geriatric psychiatrist Maureen Nash, who's the medical director at Providence Pace, the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about David's work with Greg O'Brien on Hear Me Now. Stay with us. You are listening to the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. We're talking about the care of people with dementia this week with Sally Tisdale, Maureen Nash, and David Schenk. David, for the last several years, you've been working with Greg O'Brien on a podcast called The Forgetting, in which the two of you are documenting Greg's experience of life with early onset Alzheimer's. Let's listen to a few minutes uh, from one episode, and then we'll talk about your work together. We're recording this on July 27th, 2017, and it's been about eight weeks since our last conversation. So one of the things we're doing in the podcast is telling people how long it's been because we're tracking your progress, if we can call it that. We, you so know, nice tracking whatever, whatever you're going through and, and giving our audience a sense of the changes that are happening. So Can we check the thesaurus on progress? <laughs> right. It may be a little bit of a, euf a yeah, euphemism right, to use yeah. that word. Um, but um, just just for start, for starters, tell me how you're feeling and what's been going on since you and I last spoke. Well, clock's ticking a bit. More recently, I've had um, a series of blackouts. The brain signals aren't going down. Uh, two years ago, it started, and I didn't tell anyone. There was a time my son, Connor, was with me in D.C., and I had a blackout or 
my mom used to have what they called TIAs, mm -hmm. which are um, like mini strokes. Mini strokes. Yeah. He came back in the room. I don't know to what extent he realized it, but I didn't know who he was, and um, and that that happened a couple times. But I didn't want to tell anyone because, you know, I don't, I don't want I I hate the word pity, you know, and I don't want to wear it on my sleeve. So um, more recently. I've had some additional blackouts. Two weeks ago on Nantucket, I was there, and the right side of my body collapsed twice, mm. and I was on the ground. And um, I realized after that I had to go tell my doctors that it wasn't cool not to. And, um, so can you describe what, how you experience a blackout? Do you wake up and you're on the floor, or what, well, no, what, a, what happens? A, a, a blackout, well, it, all, it, 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 you know, it's it just this journey. It, it, it happens differently with different people. But in the moment, you don't know where you are, who you are, and sometimes you're out. Just for seconds. Yeah. And, um, and then you're disorientated. And... Um, and then um, the uh, right side of, of the body collapsing, um, that was scary because there's no, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, I was going to say announcement, that's not the right word, like your brain going, hey, your body's going to collapse. Right. Um, but it, No warning at all. No, no warning at all. But Boom. you don't lose consciousness, you just kind of... Yeah, you did, get, didn't you lose get, the blackout, sometimes you do, but, right. but, but uh, with the, the body collapsing... Just in an instant, you're down on the ground. And so I was uh, um, with someone who uh, is been very good enough to give me some work in communication because if I don't do that, my family goes into bankruptcy. He was ahead of me, and we were surrounded by a lot of people, and um, he didn't see it, and I didn't tell him because mm. I knew he would take me to the hospital. He'd stay with me. We'd miss our meeting, and then he'd say, hey, Greg, I love you, man, like a brother, but we just can't do this. So right, right. I collapsed twice, got up, oh and went God. to work. Oh, my God. And I didn't tell anyone. Yeah. And then... Oh, I, uh, why? And then you got to tell people. And then uh, I, I sat down for a while, and he said, go get some coffee, because he didn't know. And I was afraid if I stood up, I'd collapse again. So I just sat there and um, didn't tell a soul. And then something in my heart said, you have to go talk to your doctor. And I did. And um, so my, I wasn't able to drive at night before, and now my license has been withdrawn. So yeah. I can't drive anymore. And, and that's a real kick in the ass. And um, uh, it's just another, I feel like, uh, you know, God's given me a, a good heart and, and you know, Irish fighter, but I, I feel like I'm a centipede and another shoe fell. So one of the things that I hear in that is the moment of terror when he realizes he doesn't know who his son is. It's a private terror. He doesn't share it with anyone. But how many, how many men have died of heart attacks or choking to death because they were embarrassed and went into a bathroom instead of asking for help. You know, we, this is very human, I think. It is terrifying, but every one of us is going to have a moment like that. Is this it? What does that mean? I don't want to know. I don't want to tell anybody. 
We just, denial is one of our first responses. And confabulation, covering up, making up a story to explain what's going on is pretty common in these early stages. So I thought that was a lovely, I thought he was very good at explaining his experience. Um, and like he says, he doesn't want that pity. Mm -hmm. He's also scared and he wants to be cared. He wants people to know now. At what point, I want to know, David, when did he begin to talk to people about it? At what stage was he able to say, yes, I have this? Well, Greg is a very rare person. Um, and um, I don't think he was ever not talking about this, actually. He's, first of all, he's, uh, he, he has those um, those instincts for denial that you just referred to that every man and, and I, su I suppose a lot of women do do also in his in his brain. But he's also just a very outgoing person who shares everything with his family mm -hmm. and close friends, and he has a lot of close friends. Never met anyone who has this many close friends. Uh, if we were to add up all of his brothers, of which I'm one now. Uh, so he never, he never, and, and because he had this family experience, uh, he talks about everything going on in his life with all of his friends. And this was already a part of his life, even before he was diagnosed because of what his, uh, what his parents and, and grandparents had gone through. And he had this early diagnosis, which, uh, may or may not have been exactly correct, but nonetheless, it was something was going on for sure. And he knew that early on, and it just became kind of a seamless part of his life that he, started sharing. In fact, we found out so early that I just found out through a friend of a friend of a friend. And that's how he then entered my world of media. We made, we've been making films together and now we're doing this podcast. So, um, but there aren't too many people who want to share that on the level that he wants, wants to share it. And that's why we're taking advantage of that with this, with this podcast. Well, it's his strength. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is this is meeting him where he is, and certainly there are not a lot of people I don't think who are in in exactly that spot. And then also I guess articulate and well enough connected that, that this they, works. Yeah. yeah. It gives him a lot of purpose. It gives him a lot of meaning, and it keeps him alive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Keeps him. I mean, alive. it reminds me of the dementia diaries a little bit. I don't know if anybody on this um, is aware of, of those, but that was yeah. started by somebody in Great Britain who had had early onset dementia. He's no longer alive, but he there are clips of people with dementia. They're pretty short, but they're all like little video clips. And so you can hear people with dementia actually sharing, you know, how it feels, how yeah. it feels. They're, how they they're really, they're really good. How it feels and what they would like you to know. That's the best part for me is for when, when I mean, there are as many dementias as there are people with dementia. You can make some gross generalizations about what might happen with Lewy body or Alzheimer's, but it will be expressed in a unique way for each person. And, you know, this mystery of the sense of self, who we feel ourselves to be is so mysterious and we think it's all in the brain. So brain failure is such an existential wound, but it's not just in the brain. It's in the body, it's in relationships, it's in habits. Our self is held in a lot of different places. So 
as dementia progresses, I really want to know from that person, how, how is it for you? What do you want me to know about what you're feeling, about mm -hmm. what you're experiencing? And like I said earlier, I've been corrected in making, in being too quick to make an assumption about a person's deficit and reminded I can do that. Just reminded, I'm still here. I think that's so important. And that's the gift that Greg is giving all of us, I think, is, is reaching out to caregivers, family members, and patients themselves, if, we're, if I can use the word patient, if you don't mind. And, um, and as, an as setting an example of saying, talk, talk, <laughs> you know, whatever you're, whatever, however you're coming to this, share what you're going through with you know, whatever part of the world you're comfortable sharing it with, you'll all be better off. It's still going to be happening to you, of course. You can't take that away, but share it and share it and share it, and and you'll and you'll be better off. And and yeah. I think he's right. Yeah. Maureen, can we pivot for a moment and talk about interdisciplinary teams and the value of them and how they improve uh, care for for people with dementia? Sure, um, one of my favorite topics. Um, and so um, there are many, many different disciplines um, out there, uh, if you'll excuse the word disciplines, but, um, and teamwork over time has really the, been conceptualized differently. And so uh, the first kind of big teams were multidisciplinary where you would have um, like maybe a small team of a, of a physician and a nurse and a social worker um, or a bigger team of a psychiatrist and a primary care provider and a occupational therapist and a social worker and a nurse. Um, and everybody would come and do an assessment from their discipline and they would, you know, develop a plan for the person from their discipline and that and we'd all put it together in one document and that is multidisciplinary care. And that is good care, especially if there's good communication between the disciplines um, that can definitely improve things for a person. But an even better evolution of care is interdisciplinary care um, or transdisciplinary care. And that's the advantage of PACE programs, Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, which is a model of care for frail older adults, people age 55 and older, which is not, not old for some of us. Um, Indeed. <laughs> and so PACE programs are a one model of interdisciplinary care. And in a good interdisciplinary team, there are many different team members from the primary care provider, the nurse, the social worker, the activities therapist, the personal care aide, the driver who transports a person, the housekeeper who actually knows way more about you than, than many others, um, you know, and you get this large um, team of physical therapists and occupational therapists and Everybody gets together, they do their assessments, but then they get together and my assessment as a psychiatrist or your assessment as the nurse practitioner who's the primary care provider and your assessment as the nurse and we put it all together and then I change my plan because 
the social worker tells me, well, you know what? It turns out, you know, this is the most important thing for Joyce and has been for the last 20, 30 years of her life or for the last 50 years of her life or the last 70 years of her life. And so we really need to take that into account. And that should be how you work on improving her mental health or that's what the physical therapist needs to know. And so interdisciplinary care is really not just lots of different disciplines putting their voice in. It's those disciplines getting together and really synthesizing their assessments and plans. And then the very key to uh, the best interdisciplinary care is that it's around and with the person. And so in PACE programs, we have participants because the, the ideal is that the participant is participating in their care. And, um, you know, sometimes people are too impaired to participate very much, but as long as you're alive, you can participate. And so my job is to, you know, make sure that we help you participate as much as possible. But so that's interdisciplinary care. And it is, um, it's a lot of work to do it, but when it's done well, it, it can be transformative. You know, I, I tell people that two things about being in a PACE program. One is I wish every person in the world had this kind of health care. I wish you didn't have to be a frail elder to get it. It's the kind of health care everybody should have. And I mean, the worst part is that you're in a lot of meetings every day, but the best part is that you're in a lot of meetings every day because we're not isolated. I'm never alone. I get a lot of feedback. People listen to my feedback and we're constantly, we try to be nimble. And if you need to be anything with a person with dementia, it's adaptive and nimble and willing to change and willing to meet that person as they are today. So we don't just have these meetings and make these plans. We make them over and over and over. <laughs> because life changes over and over and over. <laughs> what, are the, um, what are the economics of uh, interdisciplinary care like this in a PACE program? So PACE in particular is a CMS program, um, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare. Um, and it is designed for people who have, um, who are very expensive to the healthcare system and they're very expensive to care for. And what we have found with PACE programs is we are able to care for very complicated people in a way that provides through PACE higher quality and lower cost. So the lower cost makes certain people happy um, makes and certainly makes all of our lives easier. Um, and it's not the kind of fee-for-service model uh, which most of healthcare in the United States is. So PACE programs um, work because these are really expensive people to care for. And so you can design a pretty expensive system to meet their needs, but if it's going to cost you less to do it this way, and the benefit of PACE is you get better outcomes and a higher quality of care and hopefully a higher quality of life at the end of the day for the participants. That's that's the goal. Right. To wind up, I want to ask the three of you what you where you see hope in the next 20 years in, in this field 
And David, why don't we start with you? Well, I probably would have said a version of this 20 years ago. <laughs> we are, I think we are on the verge of, uh, on the biological side, uh, since we've, <laughs> we're talking about treatment and medicine in these very grand terms, and, and half of it is the, is the, you know, just dealing with these people as people as we, this, this whole hour has been about. But on the, on the, you know, strictly medical and biological side, I think we are on the verge of, uh, complete transformation of how we deal with a lot of dementias, which involve the first generation of actual drugs, uh, which um, it's funny because they tend to get studied as uh, they, they tend to get researched in, in populations of people who already have dementia. But the first generation of drugs will actually be most useful to people who don't have signs of dementia yet. Um, and the way we're really going to uh, push off this disease by 10, 20, 30 years is intervening way, way early, just like we do now with heart disease. And we've transformed heart disease completely in a, in a generation, just pushing it off so far for so many people. We're going to do that with, with, with Alzheimer's and, and some of the other dementias. Um, and, um, and at the same time, as soon as we get those first drugs, which will be crude and, you know, compared to the ones that come after that and the ones that come after that, but still there'll be, it'll be much different from what we have now. We'll also immediately need some better diagnostic tools, which are also basically just sitting there. Now we have, there's, if you've seen in the last couple of weeks, there's actually been news about a blood test. That's, that's right there ready for, for Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. Um, there's no real urgent need to develop it for the, for the, for the GP yet, because what are you going to do with that information? It's, uh, but as soon as there's a drug to take, the whole world is going to be looking at these uh, very differently. And kind of what we talked about will become irrelevant. It'll become more relevant, but there is going to be, I, I do think there's going to be a revolution on that side um, in a handful of years. Sally, the next 20 years. So, you know, my point of view on this, I'm, rather than talk about the biology uh, and pharmaceutics, I'm very interested in the sociocultural changes that we're going to see and specifically how we work with advanced directives and planning for death and assisted death. And, you know, right now, um, the assisted death laws in the United States do not deal with dementia. And uh, other countries do this more liberally, and I think we will see some changes there. But for the most part, the laws require you to consent in the moment and to be able to plan fairly close to the event. Um, and dementia doesn't allow us to do that. But a lot of people with dementia wish it did. Um, in Canada, there were when the Canadian assisted death law passed, um, it required people to re-sign the consent form at the last moment before they took the drug. And they were the government was sued by people with dementia saying, I know I wanna do this, I know I wanna do this at such and such time and I won't be able to consent. So I wanna give that consent now. And there are countries in Europe um, where this has changed. So I know to everybody, it's the very definition of a slippery slope, but it's not very slippery and it's not much of a slope. And we have many, many years of experience in Oregon with assisted death laws. And I think I would like to see this shift. 
so that people can give consent for a future event. Mm -hmm. and, and that requires also that our advanced directives get a lot more detailed than they are now. They're very big, you know, big hammers for tiny nails right now. So they're useful, better than nothing, but there are models of advanced directives in other countries which are far more detailed and, um, and useful than ours, which address many more questions and details about care. So that's, that's where I'd like to see us go, is to be much more blunt and frank and honest with each other about what we want at the end of our lives. Maureen? Dementia in the next 20 years, I, I have a couple thoughts. One is, well, we know right now, I can tell you what you need to do to decrease your risk of ever getting dementia and your, to decrease your risk of if you have it, it's showing up in a meaningful way in your life anytime soon. I can tell you, eat the Mediterranean diet, exercise, get sleep. You want 20% of your sleep to be REM sleep. How do you get good REM sleep? Well, you take care of your health and you exercise and you eat right. So, I mean, just those simple things, all the things that prevent heart disease and diabetes prevent and slow down the impact that dementia is gonna have on your life. So I would say, we already know that, we've known that for quite a while, and it's a matter of people choosing to seize the day and to act upon that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is the baby boomer generation have changed everything about this country every time they hit a new milestone, yeah. um, at least from my little view of history. And the baby boomers, I think, are going to redefine, they are going to make us know that older adults are the most resilient group on the planet, which has also been known for quite a while, but I don't think it's widely known. And I think the baby boomers are going to demand person-centered care, um, demand that we change the system through which we provide care in this country. Well, so, I think there's, there's four baby boomers right here that are trying to do that. <laughs> I'm just guessing, but that's yeah. what I suspect. Well, I, I, I only sneaked in through the last year of the baby boomers, for the record, but yes. David, David are you a baby boomer? I'm a buster. I'm I'm a few years younger. I'm 54, yeah. but um, but we'll let you We'll show you the secret handshake, okay? Oh, well, I'm 63, and that puts me in the biggest cohort of the baby boomers. So we who are 63 right now are the wedge that yeah. will be driving this. That's Sally Tisdale, a nurse at Providence Elder Place in Portland, Oregon and the vanguard of the wedge of the baby boom. She's also the author of nine books, including Advice for Future Corpses and Those Who Love Them. Maureen Nash is the medical director at Providence Pace, the program for all-inclusive care for the elderly in Portland, Oregon. She's also the 2020 American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry's Clinician of the Year. David Schenk is a writer and podcaster and musician his book, The Forgetting, Portrait of an Epidemic, is a groundbreaking chronicle of the story of Alzheimer's disease. My thanks to all three of you for a really terrific conversation. Thanks so much. Hear Me Now is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web 
at instituteforhumancaring.org. Excerpts from Alois Alzheimer's Case History of August D. were read by Tom Barclay. Hear Me Now stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. The executive producer is Mike Drummond. We welcome your feedback. Write to us at humancaring.providence.org. We have research help from Heather Martin, Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, and Sarah Viscuso. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins, inviting you to join us for the next Hear Me Now podcast and to subscribe wherever you get audio on demand. Thanks for listening. Be well.